You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet, covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and the fear of him may be before you. You may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and we are thankful for what you teach us. And Oh God, give your, give your servant this morning boldness and clarity. Only the fear of God and no fear of man as I preach your word. We pray that you would empower the preaching and hearing of your word that your spirit would overcome us, to bring sinners to salvation, and your church strengthened and sanctified. Where there is need of repentance in our hearts, please bring it, we pray. Teach us to honor your law and treasure it. We invite the presence and the power of the spirit among us and ask for him, for we need him. In Christ's name, amen. So we're in the Ten Commandments. This is the natural law. This is the constitution of reality they have abiding authority even today and we just finished several weeks on the sixth commandment you should not kill and now we get to the seventh commandment which is you shall not commit adultery you shall not commit adultery this is our national sin at least one of the most obvious ones i think this is the national sin of sexual immorality and deviancy in this country. And it is deeply embedded into all aspects of life, not just 
adultery per se, but all the sins that fall within that category. And it is something that has infected the very highest levels of government, and it has affected um, everything right down to the general labors and families within our society, so that very few families have been unscathed and untouched by the sin of adultery and sexual immorality and all within that category. This is so far-reaching. And it is a putrefying disease, that is sexual immorality and especially adultery. It is a putrefying disease that has hollowed out our political class and it is being propagated, at least other sins within this category, is being propagated is virtue within even kindergarten classrooms. And it is being celebrated as beautiful by the media. It has absolutely destroyed the public spirit of our country. It has weakened us beyond recognition. It has gutted us of all virtue. And it, I believe, has largely neutered and gelded the church of Jesus Christ, or at least the professing church of Jesus Christ, by how prevalent this sin is. Whether it's the normalization of sodomy are the proliferation and ubiquitous use of pornography, are the willingness to turn a blind eye to the very sin of adultery. This is something that has gutted and hollowed out government, it has gutted and hollowed out churches, and it has gutted and hollowed out families. So that we as a people are weakened beyond recognition. It is a sin that is designed, by its design of the enemy, it is a sin that takes our resources away and our vitality away and destroys energy and takes the means of production and wastes it. It teaches us, when people are living in a culture that where pornography and adultery and sodomy are so prevalent, it teaches us to waste productivity and squander all of our resources, all of our resources, by the very nature of this particular sin. Matthew Henry said that our chastity should be as dear to us as our lives, and we should be as much afraid of that which defiles the body as that is of that which destroys it. And this is a country that has destroyed its chastity to the point where chastity itself is not even perceived as a virtue in most quarters. And people would happily condemn what I have just said with more vigor than they would uphold the valor and virtue and truth of what I have just said. This is the state in which we find ourselves. The commandments are searching, and we took a little break there from how searching they were to deal with some higher theory level type things, 
And today, this is going to needle the human heart. There's no doubt about that. This is going to prod away within your heart, and it's going to search your innermost being. And so as you feel the sting of God's law in your heart, go immediately to Jesus Christ, for he has cleansing power. He is the great redeemer, and he is the forgiver of all sins if you just trust in him. So go to our Lord Jesus, and go to him for cleansing and trust and, and love and forgiveness. And he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. I might remind you of that again in the sermon, but I'm not going to remind it to you as strongly as I just did. And so tuck that in your brain as we go especially through this series on the seventh commandment and deal with this very real sin of sexual immorality. Tuck that in your brain and run to Jesus Christ every time you come under the conviction of sins. And I think you should mourn for your own sins. And then as you look out upon the broader community, you should mourn for the sins of this nation. Because if there is one source of weakness behind the churches in this country, and if there is one source of weakness behind the country itself, it is this sin, especially how ubiquitous pornography has become ubiquitous pornography. And normal it is. Normal it is. It's just dismissed as some type of masculine lust that every man struggles with, apparently, when in reality it is a damnable sin. It is pure evil. And it has a great putrefying effect on all of life. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to ask three questions and answer them, and this will be the first in a series of sermons on this particular topic of the seventh commandment, adultery. I'm going to answer the question, what is adultery? Then I'm going to answer the question, why is adultery evil? And then I'm going to answer the question, how does this commandment apply? And then I'm going to give you kind of an outlook as I finish off that point of what you can expect over the next few sermons that I preach from the Seventh Commandment. What is adultery? Why is adultery so evil? And how does this particular commandment apply? What is it? Why is it evil? And how does it apply? Let me answer the question, what is adultery? What is adultery? We just finished the sixth commandment, which is you shall not kill. And I hope you came out of this little bit of a series on the sixth commandment, understanding that the sixth commandment is designed to protect the sanctity of human life. I hope you got anything out of that. It's that human life is sacred. That's what the sixth commandment protects, is the sanctity of human life. Well, if the sixth commandment is designed to protect the sanctity of human life, the most sacred of beings is humanity, then the seventh commandment is designed to protect the most sacred of all human institutions, which is the family and especially, especially marriage. Especially marriage. There is no institution that is as lasting as marriage. It is the bedrock of society. 
It is the bedrock of church, of the church, and every human relationship is inferior to the marriage relationship. Don't ever forget that. That there is no human relationship superior to the marital one. Every relationship is superior or inferior, inferior to marriage. So this commandment teaches us that marriage itself is sacred. It is a sacred institution. The sanctity bound up within this is not just the sacredness of marriage, but the sanctity of the human body. The sanctity of the human body. What is adultery? What is adultery? Well, it is the violation of the marriage covenant. It is the defiling of the marriage bed. It is the defiling of the human body by sexual relations outside of marriage. That's what it is. It is the defiling of marriage, the defiling of the marriage bed, and the defiling of the human body itself with sexual relations outside of marriage. Marriage is the first and most sacred of human institutions, and Adultery, as we answer the question, what is adultery? Marriage is the most sacred and first of all human institutions. Before there was the government, before there was the church, there was marriage. After there is the government and after there is the church, there will be the marriage between Jesus Christ and his church. The Bible begins with marriage. The Bible ends with marriage. It is the most sacred of all institutions. And is that institution which is most Sacred above all, adultery is treason against the most sacred institution. I've talked about this before. Treason against your government is evil. Treason against your country is evil. But treason against marriage is the highest form of evil. The highest form of treason, rather. Treason against marriage. It is the betrayal of the most intimate relationship. And that is the relationship between a husband and his wife. That's what adultery is. It is the betrayal of the most sacred of all relationships, treason against the most sacred of all relationships. So that the seventh commandment, as I answer this question of what is adultery, and the commandment is you shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment protects and honors marriage by forbidding the violation of the marriage bed. The seventh commandment protects and honors marriage by forbidding the violation of the marriage bed. So let me move on from what is adultery. I think I just answered that question. It's treason against the most intimate and sacred of human covenants. But let me move on to the next question. And the next question is, why is adultery evil? Why is it evil? You understand that under um, Old Testament law, adultery was a capital crime. And so it was a crime that was deemed worthy of 
execution. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It's treason against marriage, against the family. Genesis chapter 20 verse 9, even the pagan king Abimelech saw it for how evil it is. As Abimelech said to Abraham, he called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So Abimelech had taken Sarah into his harem and God providentially protected her. But Abimelech saw how evil it was. Joseph, when he was, um, when Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce Joseph in Genesis 39, Joseph called it adultery, a great wickedness and sin against God. So this is evil. Job 24, verse 14 and 15, it is compared to murder. Job 24, verse 14, the murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and needy in the night. He is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me. He veils his face. And Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 2, calls it treason, treachery. Oh, that I had in the desert of travelers lodging places that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are adulterers, a company of treacherous men. So it's, it's evil. Jesus tells us that the desire for adultery, in Matthew 5, verse 27 through 30, not just the act of adultery, but the desire of adultery, so the thought of it is enough to send you to hell. Have you not yet, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So Jesus literally says that not just adultery itself. So if you think the Old Testament penal code was serious when they said that adulterers should be executed. Think about what Jesus said. The thought of adultery, the desire for adultery, not the act, the desire, sends you to hell. That's how serious it was in Jesus' mind. The Bible tells us that it's not just the defiling of the marriage bed, although it most certainly is, but it is the defiling of the human body. And it is the only sin that defiles the human body. So that 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality, for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but, sexual immorality, or, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So it's a sin against the body. It's not just a sin against marriage and the institution, but sexual immorality is a category is the defiling of the human body. It's the poisoning of the human body. It's purely evil. And this is largely because it's rooted in creation. So you'll notice that all of the Ten Commandments are rooted in, in the early accounts of creation. And one of the first things that God told Adam was to take a wife. 
So then in Genesis 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so this is rooted in creation itself, in the perfect Garden of Eden. And God's hatred of adultery is rooted in his beautiful design for marriage in the Garden of Eden. I was reading um, Thomas Watson on this, and he gave 16 reasons why adultery is evil. 16. I just gave you a few, but he gave 16. I'm going to read each one quickly, and I'm going to list them. Don't bother writing them. Oh, you can write them down, but this is going to go fairly fast, so unless you're really good at shorthand, you're not going to get it. But just listen to this. 16 reasons why it's evil. Well, it breaks the marriage oath. It's an affront against God. It's premeditated. It's needless. It's theft of another person's spouse. It renders men like animals. It pollutes the body. It destroys the body. It drains money. It destroys reputations. It impairs the mind. It brings temporal judgment upon the person. It damns the soul, and it damns the soul of the other person involved. Proverbs 22, verse 14 tells us that the adulterer is abhorred of God. So people fall into adultery because they're abhorred of God. God abhors them. And then it destroys the family. There's 16 reasons. Beyond that, Adultery is an attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is it an attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the picture of a marriage. It's a groom, the Lord Jesus, taking his bride and being faithful to her, the church, and her graciously loving him and submitting to him. So the marriage covenant is to portray and demonstrate the love that is to be evident in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that any instance of adultery is an attack on the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this invites entire oceans of wrath. So that Thomas Watson would say of adultery, who for a cup of pleasure would drink a sea of wrath? And that's what you're getting for it. You're exchanging a cup, not even a whole cup of pleasure, compared to the ocean of wrath you'll receive. A cup of pleasure for an ocean of wrath. It destroys society. Why is adultery evil? Well, I've just given you a whole bunch of reasons, but beyond that, it destroys society. So, if you think about the animal, the horse, this is a beautiful creature. And if you break a horse and you harness him, he becomes focused and productive. You see these Mennonites out here with their horses. I mean, it's amazing what these horses can pull off. And I've seen them, to, I've seen them use them on their fields and pull them down the road. And this is, a, this is a massive, beautiful creature. And when the creature itself is harnessed, it's amazing how much productivity is there. And what this, but if the, preacher, if the creature itself is unharnessed and unbroken, it becomes wild. And its energy... And its productivity is basically, the energy is not used for productivity. It becomes a useless creature for men. And sexual intimacy is the same way. 
The seventh commandment harnesses desire and renders desire focused and productive. Otherwise, men behave like wild beasts. They become unfocused and unproductive and unrestrained in their desires, unharnessed. So that the, it, it destroys everything. It teaches people to be reckless when this gauge is removed. I heard someone describe the sexual desire like gasoline. And so if you just have, you have a can of gas and you spray it everywhere and drop a match, what happens? After the fumes gather for a little bit, kaboom. It's just a big waste of energy. But if you have gasoline and you put it in the engine of your vehicle, or you put diesel in your tractor, and the diesel or the gasoline goes into the piston, what happens? The energy behind that explosion is now harnessed so that you can move tons and tons of goods across a country. It's the harnessing of energy. And human sexuality is the same way. If it's not harnessed, it just becomes an absolute waste of energy that is destructive. But if it's harnessed, it becomes very productive and very useful. And so when people will not protect their most sacred vows, which are the marriage vows, they will not protect less sacred vows. Think about that. If you will not protect the most sacred vows, which are the marriage vows, you will not protect the least sacred vows. For example, business contracts, or etc. So that there's a direct link between the sacredness and productivity of a godly marriage and the prosperity of uh, ethical free enterprise. You can't have a, a strong culture of entrepreneurship if you don't have a respect for contract law. Because if you don't have a respect for contract law, then all of a sudden you start spending all kinds of money on legal fees to enforce upholding contracts. And this is what happens when people lose respect for the marriage covenant is not only does the violation of the marriage covenant become norm, so people are basically wasting their energy on all kinds of fruitless endeavors and destructive endeavors, but the entire society crumbles because it teaches you that it's okay not to honor contract and not to honor your word. And energy gets wasted everywhere. You live in a society where there is no respect for contract when there is no respect for the marriage covenant. And if violating the marriage covenant is the norm, then violating other contracts, which are much lower, will too become the norm, and people will begin squandering their money on, as I said, less on legal fees to enforce contracts, even as they squander their money on bickering through divorce proceedings. Watch people bicker through divorce proceedings. It's amazing the amount of energy that goes towards destroying a family and the amount of energy that goes towards dividing money and the amount of energy and money that just gets sucked away into an unproductive vacuum. And that's 
just a picture of what happens when society starts to lose respect for lesser vows and lesser contracts. If you violate the greater, you will violate the lesser. If the violation of the greater is the norm, the violation of the lesser will be the norm. And if the violation of the greater leads to the squandering of all kinds of resources, so will the violation of the lesser. So that now money and resources and energy and creativity are not used for building, but they're used for destroying. Adultery destroys society. I'm talking about why it's so evil. It destroys society. Vern Poitras said, Adultery then corrupts the order of authority in Israel, Israelite society, and it corrupts the line of inheritance and attacks the womb as the source of life. It attacks the very source of life, the womb itself. That's what adultery does. It is not just the violation of the marriage contract, but it is the violation of the womb, which is the place of human life. The first place of motherly nourishment is the womb. And the act of adultery is not just an attack on the marriage, but it is an attack on the womb, an organ that God has given women so that they can nourish and protect and foster human life, and it is an organ that is then explicitly used for sinful pleasure. Adultery is an attack on the womb. William S. Plumer said, if marriage is not properly guarded, population itself will dwindle away even under the most favorable circumstances of soil, climate, and commerce. The real prosperity and solid wealth and resistless power of a nation do not depend on splendid edifices and glittering crowns for the few, but upon the industry, frugality, and thrift of the, com of the component parts of the empire. Families make empires. What does family life teach you? When your family life is focused and your energy is focused on the family, what does it teach you? Well, it teaches you industry, it teaches you enterprise, it teaches you frugality, it teaches you thrift, because now all of these virtues are going, and it teaches you faithfulness, all of these virtues are now going into the family, as opposed to being squandered on fruitless pursuits of pleasure. The family becomes the engine for the building of empires, as the sexual energy is harnessed, just like the piston harnesses gasoline or diesel fuel. And for this reason, why is adultery evil? Well, I've given you some reasons. Adultery is a reprehensible evil. It is a filthy parasite that destroys all that it touches and leaves nothing but putrefaction in its wake. This is the only thing it does. Destroys everything a reprehensible parasite in evil. That's adultery. So we'll, I've talked about, what have I talked about now? I've, I've said, what is adultery? And then I asked the question, why is adultery evil? And then now what I want to do is I want to apply this more specifically. How do we apply this? How do we apply this? Well, I'm going to preach a few sermons on this, but 
I'll lay that out in a few minutes what I'm gonna, where I'm going to go with it. But there's multiple ways to apply this. And if you remember early on in my series on the Ten Commandments, I talked about the various applications of the law. And so I'll give you a few reminders as to how we are to apply the law through this section. How do we apply this? Well, one of the ways we apply this, as I noted early on, is each commandment includes all other kinds of actions within the category. So how are we to apply this? Well, this is one of the ways we apply it, is we deal with all other kinds of action within the category. And so let's talk about this for a minute. What are all other actions within the category? Well, I can't exhaust them, but I can say this, that the only sexual relationship that the Bible permits and celebrates is that between a husband and wife. So any sexual activity out of that union is prohibited. So that's one way you apply it, is that just anything outside of that is sin. So that being said, it forbids pornography, which is essentially virtual adultery, the exchange of illicit activity on the internet and attaining forbidden knowledge. So let, me, let me explain. I think pornography is, is too downplayed in our day and age. It's just too normalized. People, ah, it's just lust. No. You know what lust is? Lust is the desire for, for something forbidden. That's what lust is. It's the desire for something that's forbidden. Theft is the acquisition of the forbidden. So as it pertains to pornography, the desire for pornography is lust. It's the desire for the forbidden knowledge of another person, their nakedness. That's lust. It's the desire for porn. But the actual act of acquiring porn is now the theft or the taking in of forbidden knowledge. Porn is the acquisition of forbidden knowledge. So... If you look at Exodus 20, verse 26, just after the Ten Commandments, this theme is repeated throughout Scripture. It says, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now, that's just one verse that talks about nakedness in the Bible. But the, the, the reality is, is that nakedness is to be protect, protected, and you're not to acquire the knowledge of another person's nakedness. And if you acquire the knowledge of another person's nakedness, this is the acquisition of forbidden knowledge. So that porn is a much greater sin than lust. It's the possession and acquisition of knowledge that God forbids. Forbidden knowledge. And those of you who have children, you need to protect them from this because it's everywhere. So, and, and I wouldn't... I mean, once you give your kids a phone or access to a computer, now you, you've opened up a whole new area that you need to protect them from. But the thing is, even if you don't give your kids a phone and you don't protect them from, or you don't give them access to a computer or cable or whatever, even if you don't do that, your kids are going to be with other kids, and hopefully they are. You want your kids to socialize with other kids. And what are you going to do if they're with another kid that says, hey, look at this? Right? And, and so I think the most important thing that you can teach your children as it pertains to this particular issue is you need to inform their conscience when it's appropriate and in appropriate terms at their various levels is of development, that they ought to protect their nakedness and not look upon the nakedness of another. 
It's that simple. You inform their conscience, their conscience will speak for itself. And if they find themselves in trouble, then their conscience will be rattled. And then it will squeeze the repentance right out of them as their consciences haunt them. And so this stuff is something that you'll know. But but the idea with parenting children in this perverted world that we live in is you want to be the first one to talk to them about this stuff. You don't want it to be their buddy at school. That's, you don't want it to be their buddy at school. You want to, but you don't want to talk to them about it too early because you, you, you want to preserve their innocence as long as you can. So you're trying to balance these two things as a parent, right? You're trying to, on one thing, you're trying to protect them by informing them before anyone else does. And then on another side, you're trying to keep them as innocent as you can for as long as you can. And the only way to know kind of where the happy place is in that is, is to pray for wisdom. God give you wisdom. But it would be a mistake not to talk to your children about this. And it would be a mistake to talk to them about it too early. And it would be a mistake to talk to them about it too late. And so you need to pray for God's grace in these areas. But you need to teach your children to protect their nakedness and to not look upon the nakedness of another. And this needs to be a message that is regularly ingrained into their thinking in appropriate ways, in appropriate terms. Not only does, and by the way, I, I, think, I think pornography is adultery. I think it is. Because it is the exchange of intimate knowledge. This is evil. It's purely evil. It's too acceptable. And there's too many guys that, oh, well, I just dismiss it as lust. It's completely unacceptable. It's vile. It's trash. It weakens people. It destroys homes, it destroys marriages, it destroys society, and it's accessible. There was a day and age where you had to, people wanted to get a hold of this filth, they'd have to have the experience, the shame of picking up a magazine at a, at a, at a rack in a store. But now they can hide with their phones and look at it anywhere. And so it's accessible, but it's pure trash. And you know you've reached a place in sanctification when you, when you think upon this stuff and it gives you an upset feeling in your stomach as it should because you realize how trashy and filthy it is. It brings no good. It is vile. It is reprehensible. It is a scourge. And it should be run from and destroyed. It does nothing good and only evil. But so how does this apply? Well, it applies, the seventh commandment applies to multiple categories. One would be pornography. Another one would be fornication, which is simply premarital sex. Vern Poitras said, in Israelite society, young unmarried women were either virgins or prostitutes. Great social stigma attached to the loss of virginity. And so families protected their daughters until the time of engagement and marriage, which was usually of a comparatively young age. Did you hear that? Look, if you're sleeping with a man you're not married to by marriage, the difference between you and a prostitute who's exclusive to him is that the prostitute earns money. You do it for free. And then you say stuff like this, and people will say, well, how far is too far? in a relationship. How far is too far? 
You know, that, first of all, that's the wrong question to ask. That's the wrong question to ask. The question shouldn't be, how far can I go without compromising my holiness and my virtue and my chastity? The, prob- the question should be, how holy can I be? So if you're asking that question, you're thinking the wrong way, first of all. But beyond that, there is a Bible verse for this. And it's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, verses 1 and 2. But verse 2 is on the screen. Verse 1 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So how is a single man supposed to treat younger women? As sisters in all purity. So if it would be unacceptable for you to do it with your sister, it's unacceptable for you to do it with your girlfriend. That's the scriptural norm. There's no category between being single and married in the Bible. If it's unacceptable between siblings, it's unacceptable between boyfriend and girlfriend. Because the Bible knows no such category as boyfriend and girlfriend. Although it is a normal way to progress towards marriage and get to know each other, which is absolutely fine, there is no category for intimacy within that realm. So it forbids personal fornication. It forbids fornication, I mean, rather. It forbids all kinds of other evils that I could talk about. Maybe we will, but some of them are just so evil you don't want to talk about them. As uncomfortable as some of these topics already are, some of them you just don't want to talk about them at all. You don't want to mention them. It's so vile and low. But suffice it to say that it forbids any sexual activity outside of the activity experience between a husband and wife. That's what it forbids. Anything else is off limits. Anything else. So that's one way we'd apply this. Here's another way we should apply this. Each commandment includes inciting obedience in others and not inciting disobedience in others. So you should act in a way that incites obedience and doesn't incite disobedience. Let's go through a few things under this category. This would mean not reading books that incite an imagination that shouldn't be incited. Well, if the predominant Temptation of young men might be pornography. Many young women are tempted towards books that incite arousal when they have no business reading them because they're inciting the inclination or the desire for something that's off limits. Thomas Watson said, is the reading of scripture stirs up the love to God so reading bad books stirs up the mind to wickedness. Illicit romance novels that impassion women with too much time on their hands should be off limits. It's an idle use, or it's a terrible use of idle time. You'd be much better being productive with your time. And you should be monitoring what your daughters read and only promoting novels that inspire virtue instead of glamorizing vice. Too many are too loose with the type of literature they allow into their homes. It is evil And it is complicitness and violations of the seventh commandment when children are allowed to read novels that inspire vice instead of virtue. And when you permit that filth into your homes. It would also include not dressing in provocative ways. 
is a general rule, men lust by looking at women, and women lust by trying to get men to look at them, is a general rule. Oh, I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule, but I'm talking about a general norm of human behavior. And so is it would be wrong for a man to lust by looking at a woman. It would be wrong for a woman to attempt to get a man to look at her and lust after her. Beyond that, she should protect her own dignity by covering her body. As I said earlier, you should teach your children to protect their nakedness, which means covering themselves. And for some reason, some people think that modesty is important unless you're at the beach. You'd never let your daughters, you'd never want to walk around in a way that so many people walk around in at the beach. You know, you know back in the day, just let me state this, they couldn't find a model indecent enough to model the first bikini. Like you want to go back a couple of generations? When the first, when they tried to look for a model to model the first bikini, they couldn't find one. So you know what they had to do? They had to hire a French prostitute to model the first bikini. And that first bikini was likely much less revealing, or much more, sorry, much less revealing than the bikinis that are worn today. So I don't know why it's acceptable to, to be immodest at the beach, but modest everywhere else. I don't understand how people have this duplicit way of thinking in their minds. But John Bunyan said, the attire of an harlot is too frequently in our day the attire of professing Christians. And if, there, and if those that give way to immodest apparel be not whores in their hearts, I know not what to say. Wilhelm S.A. Brackle said, the wearing of inappropriate clothing and the attire of harlots, as well as the making bare of the members, speaking of body parts, which for decency's sake ought to be covered, is the manifestation of a heart that is bent on fornication and alluring others to indulge in it. Our standards of modesty are too low. Immodest and salacious clothing by design is an attempt to seduce the imagination of others. Even if the one who's wearing it is not attempting to do it, the designer is. And this is where it comes from. And we should be teaching children to protect their nakedness and not look upon the nakedness of others. And if ladies are parading immodestly, what they're doing quite often is lusting after male attention, and that's a sin. And then to turn around and put it on Instagram compounds the issue. This is forbidden in the seventh commandment. Beyond that, I just mentioned, each includes inciting obedience in others and not inciting disobedience in others. Each commandment contains a negative and a positive commandment. I've talked about that. I've talked about that extensively in the sixth commandment. Each command contains a negative and positive commandment. The negative is don't commit adultery. You know what the positive is? You know what the positive of don't commit adultery is? Well, one is it's esteem marriage, and two is it's enjoy marital intimacy regularly. The forbidding is the adultery. The positive is to enjoy marriage and esteem marriage and enjoy marital intimacy regularly. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said, Marriage has been and is to me the best and dearest of temporal blessings. You know, too many people joke about marriage and how 
oh, when you get married, your life ends and your freedom ends. Well, that's not my experience. I consider, like John Newton, marriage to be the greatest temporal blessing that the Lord has given me. It is a wonderful gift from heaven. It truly is. Thomas Watson said, pure conjugal love is a gift of God and comes from heaven. When Watson speaks of conjugal love, he's speaking of sexual intimacy and calls it a gift from heaven. I don't think, I mean, this is part of God's design. And the devil's design is to pervert and destroy and pollute what God has designed. And so, by way of application, if you're, if you're not married, well, this is, I just want to commend the institution to you and let you know that it is a, it is a desirable state. But if you are married, you need to cultivate it to enjoy it and be thankful for it. It's a wonderful gift from heaven. And that's what I'm going to spend the next few sermons on, is the topic of marriage, celebrating the positive aspects of marriage, and how to apply various Christian and scriptural principles in order to obey the positive aspect of this commandment, which is to esteem marriage highly and enjoy marriage is the most beautiful and wonderful relationship that God himself has created. And that's what it is. And there's a reason that our media and our pop culture are, seem incapable of commending marriage and quite ready to ridicule it and mock it and make jokes about it. It's because the devil hates it. But Christians ought to celebrate it. It's a beautiful thing. And so that's what I'll talk about over the next several sermons as I speak of the very positive aspect of this commandment. I've answered the question, what is adultery? I've answered the question, why is adultery evil? I've answered the question, not exhaustively, but somewhat, how do we apply this commandment? And then I'm going to spend several sermons talking about marriage itself and the positive aspect of the seventh commandment. Let's pray together. Father in, he- Father in heaven, we thank you for your good gift and your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your kindness towards us. We thank you that your grace is showered upon us. We thank you for the goodness of your law. And I pray that you would help us to bless you as we seek to honor it. And where there is conviction for sin, you would draw us to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.